Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good, and uh, I'm going to drive today. Is that okay, Brian? Take it. Take the wheel. Here we yes. go. Ian, take the wheel, as the saying <laughs> as definitely, the goes. <laughs> definitely is not. That is more sacrilegious than we typically are this early in the show. Brian, before we get rolling here, it's Friday. You love Fridays more than any adult person that I know. Uh, how, how are you feeling right now? I mean, with that introduction, hey, by the way, I did just say our show started January of 2018. That's incorrect. January of 2019. Uh, all right. Anyway, so a little inside baseball. Brian actually filled the rundown for today's show, but I'll be kind of driving it from uh, from this point on. And you selected, to my surprise, an article written by Pastor Brian Zahn, who has been on the show. And right. uh, I'm a big fan of Pastor Zahn, but he also can tend to be fairly controversial depending on your political and or theological bent. So I was surprised, I was surprised Brian to see it, to be honest. And I'd love for you to get us into it. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I don't always agree with everything he says, but I'm finding myself as we get close to this election drawn to people writing what he's writing about here. His title is basically put not your trust in princes or presidents. I, I'm finding myself drawn to people who are trying to point us to what's more important. Uh, pastors, authors. Uh, so he begins by quoting Psalm chapter 146. And then he goes on to say, during the final throes of this tumultuous election season, the thing that troubles me most as a pastor is the degree to which those who ostensibly confess that Jesus is Lord put their trust in political princes, parties, and presidents. He says, day after day, I hear high, high profile Christian leaders announcing with frenzied alarm that the cause of Christ hangs perilously in the balance and can only be saved by a particular election outcome. These religious alarmists speak breathlessly of the need for a politician to, quote, save Christianity or protect God. It's political hyperbole of the most ludicrous kind. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the psalmist again. I think that paragraph right there is why I wanted to start the show there uh, and um, one thing I like about the show, I wouldn't normally have read Brian's on. And so to be able to read it, I, I, I read that and I was like, yes, that's, that is it. Like to hear people, uh, in our churches or on TV, uh, Christians speak of this election, like we're somehow saving God, saving Christianity. Like if we, if, if person X doesn't win the election, uh, then, then Jesus is gone from America and no longer will any, will it be any, uh, any semblance of Christianity as opposed to, you know what, it's important who wins, but I can, I can stand firmly on the fact that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Jesus is going to be Lord on Wednesday, regardless of who wins the election. Uh, and the church can kind of, uh, live under that umbrella and the, the election's still important and still vote still this and that, but it's not like, Christianity is hanging in the balance right now. And, 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 and that bothers me when people speak in those terms, uh, kind of the trust and everything's about, you know, the politics of it all, uh, that when I read guys like Brian Zond or John Piper or others talk about, no, it's not, it is not the end of the world. What happens on Tuesday? It's important. It's not the end of the world. And we've got to get this perspective, right. If we're going to, uh, follow Jesus, and if we're going to live on mission. And so I just appreciate what he had to say here. I don't think I ever imagined I'd hear the sentence. People like Brian Zahn and John Piper, when they say... I was on purpose. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a little bit of uh, a little bit of whiplash there. I, I like what he said. He says, I can imagine this anonymous psalmist rolling his or hers eyes at the religious political rhetoric currently in circulation. Ancient Hebrew psalmists and prophets had too much experience with Egypt 
and Babylon and other empires to fall for the propaganda that the plans of a mortal prince could rescue or imperil the purposes of God. As Daniel said so succinctly to a puffed up Nebuchadnezzar, heaven rules. That's Daniel 4.26. Furthermore, the early Christians in the Roman Empire knew better than to fall for the pretentious imperial claims that Caesar was the savior of the, of the world. Their audacious confession was that Jesus, not Caesar, is the savior of the world. Early Christians believed the world would be saved by the Son of God, not by some child of the earth, even if that mortal was momentarily emperor of the Roman world. But things changed once Christians fell for the preposterous claim that Jesus Christ has temporarily deferred his earthly lordship to a sword-wielding emperor because Caesar was now some version of a Christian. And there's a lot of history behind that statement. That's right. right. Uh, And though this theological blunder was understandable, perhaps even inevitable, in the time of Constantine, it is totally inexcusable for Christians 17 centuries later to pursue the now thoroughly discredited project of a political Christendom. Put not your trust in princes, the ancient psalmist was right all along. I'd love to know what you think about those last two statements, particularly given some of the other interviews that we've had this week. Uh, yeah, you know, the whole put not your trust in princes, I, I, in light of the interviews we've had this week, like I want people to be engaged in the system. I, I think you should vote. I, yesterday I got on the show and said, I voted yesterday. Uh, and so the article we did yesterday where it was like, hey, there's some people in good conscience who aren't going to vote. I understand that. That's just not my thing. And so I'm all for voting. I'm all for being uh, patriotic. I forget who we had on yesterday who talked about the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Like, I'm all for being patriotic. It's when we put our trust and our hope in this politician or in this case, this prince or this president. It's when that's our hope. And if if that person doesn't get voted, then all our hope goes away. And and, and somehow that we think that uh, that that God's kingdom is um it's it's contingent upon this person getting elected. Uh, and, and I just sense that in a lot of people on my Facebook feeds, you know, in church, wherever else that, that I think it's it's really problematic. And I think there's going to be, like you said, on one of the sides comes wet come Wednesday or Thursday, whenever the election's done, there's going to be people despairing that now we are, you know, we've turned our back on God. And there's going to be other people who are going, see, Jesus, believe, no, this, that, that's not what's going on on Tuesday. And so, uh, yeah, I, I do just appreciate what he had to write here. You know, he just said, let me just read this one part. He said, let me be once again clear. I'm not an anarchist. I'm not retreating into quietism. Nevertheless, when I confess that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, this is not an empty platitude. I really believe it. And that's what I want to challenge all of us with. Like, do we really believe that? And if so, how is it going to play out in not just the coming days, uh, but coming weeks, coming months, coming years. What does it mean if we actually believe that Jesus is Lord? Yeah, let me just read his last paragraph. He says, in the meantime, the church needs to occupy itself, not so much with trying to change the world, but by seeking to be the world as already changed by Christ. That's a great sentence. For if we see it as our task to change slash save the world, the temptation to reach for Caesar's sword will prove too much. And once we start down that road, our compromise and corruption are guaranteed. So please, church, Put not your trust in princes. Put your trust in our risen Lord, who has been has been given all authority in both heaven and on earth. Either way, that's up at our Facebook page. We know that uh, we are ramping towards a, a day that a lot of people are writing and blogging and tweeting and talking about. And uh, this, I think, is a is a great it's a great discussion starter at the very least. And we would love to know what you think over on the Facebook page here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us uh, on a beautiful sunny day here in the Chicagoland area. And we are thrilled uh, to be joined on the phone from the state of Missouri by Derek Vreeland. Derek is the discipleship pastor of Word of Life Church and also author of a book called By the Way. Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Just for the sake of our audience, so they can get to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, as you said, I'm a discipleship pastor and author and writer here in Northwest Missouri, just north of Kansas City, just north of the Super Bowl reigning champion, (laughs) Kansas City Chiefs. So I tell people I belong to two kingdoms. I belong to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the chiefs, kingdom <laughs> nation. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, it looks like we're going to have to end the interview there, Derek. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Uh, now, Derek, you, you wrote a book called By the Way, which I think is phenomenal. We're actually in a series at our church right now called This is the Way, which everyone thinks is a Mandalorian reference, which it, <laughs> right. it, sort, of, it sort of is. But one of the things that Brian and I hear often on the show, because we're pastors, when we, when we delve into certain topics, sometimes the pushback is, why don't you guys are pastors? Why don't you just talk about the gospel? Just talk about the gospel. And I'm, I'm often asking, well, how do you define that? And the most yeah. common response is, oh, I, I asked Jesus into my heart, asked him to forgive me of my sins. And yeah. your book, in a lot of ways, kind of goes after that notion, maybe not being the full picture of what the gospel actually is. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Sure. In the book, I really want to reshape um, uh, what the gospel is. I devote an entire chapter call it story, the way of the gospel. But in a sense, the whole book is is built on this premise that in American evangelicalism, we tend to misunderstand what the gospel is and what the experience of salvation is. Hmm. So many of us that grew up in evangelicalism grew up in the shadow of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we appreciate Billy Graham and we thank God uh, for the ministry and the legacy of Billy Graham, but the American church, particularly American evangelicalism, has picked up really what I call Billy Graham style evangelism, where the gospel message is very individual and very personalized and very much uh, hinges on an individual making a decision about what they believe uh, about certain propositions related to Jesus. And yes, cross and resurrection are in there, but the the driving impetus is for people to make a decision. So you very often hear people speak about experiencing salvation in response to the gospel, asking Jesus into their heart, um, you know, praying a prayer, receiving forgiveness so they can go to heaven when they die. And certainly those are all elements to both the gospel message and our experience of salvation. But it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I really want us just to go back to Jesus and hear afresh what Jesus calls us to do. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. He doesn't say go into all the world and get people saved. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say go into all the world and get people to have a favorable opinion of me. (laughs) He doesn't say go into all the world and get people to ask me into their heart. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. So the book is really trying to root us in what Jesus has called us to do. 
about mm. that. You you call non discipleship uh, the elephant in the room, uh, the the elephant in the church. Could you expand on how non discipleship is the elephant in the room? Well, that's actually Dallas Willard. So oh, okay. I, I will I will give props to the great <laughs> Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy um, is, is where that line is found. But mm-hmm. but Willard's ministry was really shaped about addressing the elephant. Um, but from what I've seen, um, I agree. Uh, I mean, Willard wrote that so long ago, but I still see it very present mm-hmm. that we typically and again i'm speaking in my own context sort of the the evangelical or even post evangelical world in my context it is still a bit of the elephant because here's jesus with this great commission and yet we tend to spend a lot of energy in attraction and in buildings and in organizational flow charts and and all of those things are a part i understand of church life but we seem to spin our wheels over and over with a very, uh, you know, showy presentational style mm-hmm. of of worship. I think particularly with COVID and moving online, mm-hmm. people want to put a lot of resources into the, the the broadcast of Sunday morning, and yet discipleship gets pushed to the side. It becomes this department within the church. For, you know, the super spiritual people, they go through those classes or they're in those small groups. Um, but I think it should be front and center because it's what Jesus has called us to do. I, I think one of the posts that I got the most pushback from when COVID was really starting to hit, I said something like, now would be a good time to focus more on equipping than entertaining, I think was the language I used. And I, I just got, got so much pushback for that. And people, you know, in a lot of ways made cases for the show that you were just talking about. Like, well, that's how you, that's how you get them in the door. And then, and then we focus on discipleship, which is probably a whole other discussion. Why, why do you think in the West in particular, and I, I kind of single out the West because it feels like a lot of our Eastern brothers and sisters don't have nearly the same problem. Why are we so attracted to either language around converts, salvation by simply, you know, intellectual belief or kind of the show that is, is so often what we see in Western American Christianity? A part of it is we are, we have been thoroughly secularized. Mm -hmm. Um, The flood waters of secularism, which has flooded Western Europe, uh, has hit our shores. And we are all, myself included, thoroughly secular. Mm -hmm. And within secularism, sort of post-enlightenment secularism, the the autonomous thinking self, the individual, is elevated to what is supreme, receives supreme value. Hmm. And that cultural change within North America and, you know, in our context here in the U.S., um, has, has shaped the people that sit in the pews or the chairs in our churches. And so we are so thoroughly secular, we don't even know how secular we are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that emphasis on the individual right behind individualism is that consumerism that's always lurking in the shadows um, has reshaped values for our church members. So they are evaluating church and church services um, simply by those cultural values that have shaped them. Yeah. 
And Derek, what's the result? So people could kind of grasp the gravity of this. What's the result when we as churches ignore discipleship and formation altogether? We produce Christians um, that are shallow. And so when real crises and real pressure hits, Mm. um, you know, we're we're like those um, those plants that grow up in the parable of the sower. We grow up quickly, but with no root, we wither away. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, we're seeing that. I think everywhere when the pressure's on without the root of discipleship, we wither. Mm -hmm. That other voice here is Derek Vreeland, author of the book, By the Way. Also, he's discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And this is such an important topic. And we're thrilled that Derek's going to join us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We're glad to have you with us. And we're also glad to be joined for a second segment by Derek Vreeland. Derek is the author of a book by the, uh, called By the Way, and also the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And Derek, uh, as we talk about discipleship and the church and, and kind of doing that work, I'm curious uh, maybe in your own experience, in your own church, or or maybe more on a grand scale, how do you feel like COVID and, and all the restrictions have maybe hurt discipleship and made it uh, made us have to rethink it right now the way we do it in churches? COVID has been awful. Um, there was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Lifeway research article that came out that said, I want to say it was 58%. It was the majority of pastors that were surveyed have major concerns about how COVID is shaping and reshaping the church. I know that there's smaller congregations that might not have the resources to be online. Um, They not survive COVID. And so it's been a huge challenge. The biggest challenge for discipleship um, that we have been presented with is the the loss of connectivity in community. Mm. So discipleship is intensively communal. Um, what separates simply education from discipleship is life on life, flesh and blood on flesh and blood connections. I mean, Jesus, when he was, uh, you know, preaching the gospel and healing the sick and, and teaching about the kingdom of God, did so on purpose in a gathering of 12 people, the disciples he brought together in community. And so COVID has presented these challenges where, yes, we have technology. Yes, we have FaceTime and texting and email and Zoom and Facebook video. But I've always been very, very hesitant because I have major concerns about how digital technology is is perhaps harming our souls. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of us, myself included, have had to say, OK, we have this obstacle um, of isolation how can that become an opportunity? Mm. And so for me as a pastor, I really made a major shift in my approach to where at one time, you know, I thought online church was was something made up. Like, this is not <laughs> anything I want to be a part of. To where now we just two weeks ago um, launched a new initiative in our church where we are cultivating an online congregation. And we are looking at these obstacles as opportunities. How can we create Zoom small groups and how can we virtually connect with people? And uh, it's, it is a great opportunity, but it does require us to 
to rethink a bit what does it look like to do discipleship using digital tools right. during this uh, time of the home quarantine. And the other topic that Brian and I seem to have tackled a number of times this last year in this most bizarre upside down of years is the topic of justice. It, it tends to be the most controversial topic that we ever tackle on the show. And you actually yes. wrote a, a, an article uh, for Miss You Alliance uh, about a year or so ago addressing the elephant in the church, seven necessary components of integrated discipleship, which is what we've been talking about. Your seventh one includes justice, but I've, I've never actually seen it phrased quite this way. Your, your seventh is inward community and outward justice. I, I'd love to know, one, why in your mind are those two things connected? And maybe what is what does biblical justice look like right now in your mind? Well, they're connected, but there's tension between a focus on imagining the church as a tight-knit community, a household, a family. Right. There's tension between understanding that, which is what we've talked about, right? That's where discipleship happens. The, the, the counterbalance to that is justice, which my understanding of biblical justice is that justice is God's work of setting right a world gone wrong. So justice, it's funny, I, I for a long time had a very cartoonish image of justice in terms of law enforcement, that, well, justice is when the good guys catch the bad guys and throw the bad guys in jail. Right. Um, but justice is a deeply biblical word that is about God's activity of bringing restoration to those who are oppressed to those who have been on the, the, the underside of society. Hmm. And so if this is the work of God, I, I believe that justice is the mission of God in the world, and therefore it's the church's task to make disciples fit for that mission. Hmm. In other words, we are formed as a gathered people in community, but then God is scattering us that we might be agents of peace, that we might be peacemakers, that we might be the justified justice bringers into our neighborhood. And it is um, it, it is controversial because, as I've experienced as a pastor, different people have different passions when it comes to justice, yeah. or people's heart are drawn to different justice issues. And so sometimes that can be in... in um, in conflict. For example, there are Christians who feel very passionate about the injustice of abortion and, and the lives of the unborn. And I think to advocate for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn, I think that's a part of God's justice. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who are drawn to injustices of, of poverty or racial inequality and systemic racism. And so sometimes those Christians can kind of argue with each other, but I see it sort of as the beauty of the body of Christ that God is going to put within us a heart to advocate for a certain kind of justice in the world. And as long as all of us are being obedient to how God is leading us, we together as the church can begin to bring God's love and God's benevolent care into these different justice issues. Mm, that's great. Uh, 
before we close out, I want to give you an opportunity to, to expand on something you said earlier, and that's the danger of when we view Christianity as uh, I'm just supposed to ask God into my heart, right? A lot of us grew up with that, right? right? When did I ask Jesus into my heart? Could you expand? I know you touched on it earlier, but could you expand on the danger of that and what you mean when you say that's not really the heart of the gospel? Well, uh, for one, it's it's not a uh, biblical language. And I mm-hmm. think the church historically goes off the rails when we stretch too far from the biblical narrative. But the danger is it makes it all individual and personal. Mm-hmm. And it reduces Christianity down to a, a Jesus and me spirituality. And once that becomes the heart, then you lose the inward community that you need and you also lose that impulse towards justice, mm. forgetting that God so loved the world. It was God's desire to save the whole world and not just you. So that's the danger I see there. Uh, Derek, we're really grateful for the time you've spent with us. Before we uh, close out this interview, I'd love for you to share with people where they can read more of your stuff, where they can find your book, maybe social media. Give everything, all the places <laughs> people can find you. Well, you got to spell my name right. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, my own website at Derek Vreeland, which is D-E-R-E-K, last name V like Victor, R-E-E-L-A-N-D. You can find links to books and articles and sermons and videos. It's all out there. That's awesome. Derek, we really appreciate your time. Again, the name of the book is By the Way. And Derek is also the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Derek, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate it. I enjoyed it, guys. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, As we've talked about many times uh, before, Ian and I are both pastors. Uh, what? And uh, <laughs> at least for now, until that last segment goes out. <laughs> uh, and, and with that in mind, uh, we found this. I think you put this up on our Facebook page earlier this week. John L. Cooper, who you told me, lead singer of Skillet. Is that right? <laughs> you sound so that unconfident correct? in that. Yes, that's right. That's I am right. unconfident there. Okay. Skillet, Christian <laughs> ska band. Correct. Not ska. No, sir. How would you classify? Are you, be, are you being serious? I am. I thought that's that thought that's when they came around. No, they are not Scott at all. In fact, I will say this: cards on the table. Uh, I was a real big fan of their first self-titled album. Um, it was like a grungy garage rock kind of. They're definitely not that anymore. Uh, and they've okay. sort of veered. They did what did some more digital stuff for a while, and then they kind of fit in that. You know, the band Evanescence, they're sort of kind of in that kind of vibe. Our uh, musician producer is probably pulling his hair out thinking this is the worst <laughs> way to describe this band. But they're sort of, yeah, they're sort of just I'm sorry. I was I was rock. dying. <laughs> Christian yeah. Scott you know, band? No. So, so let me let me defend myself a little bit here. I wasn't saying that from any music I remember of Skillet at all. I was just lumping them with kind of the time frame I remember them. So, like, if, if I heard them, I would know they're not ska. But okay, well. if you asked me to name a Skillet song, I could not do so. So, anyway, <laughs> with that rousing, <laughs> John Cooper, their lead singer, he went on Facebook uh, a couple days ago, November the 6th, and posted something pretty provocative. It says this, make pastors uncool again. And John Check. Cooper, he... Uh, he, <laughs> we, we are successful <laughs> deal. Yeah. Uh, 
the MPUA hats. We'll wear those, making pastors uncool again. Oh, and so, uh, he he will pr- he will post provocative stuff. Uh, he'll push back on people often online. But uh, we did find this interesting, and I think he's probably writing this a little bit from all the stuff we see going on around with some pastors having moral failures and yeah, other things. Yeah. And so, I thought we'd just read. You, you could read this whole post. And uh, and then we'll see what we think about it. Make pastors uncool again. Why don't you read this for us? It, it is worth noting, too. Uh, my buddy Kevin commented within seconds, like, I don't know that Ian could be any less cool than he than he currently is. So we seem to be doing a great job of that already. But uh, yeah, success. Right. We've arrived. Uh, make pastors uncool again. He writes, pastors shouldn't be rock stars. Yeah, I said it. A rock star promotes himself, builds his brand and entertains people. It's his job. A pastor is supposed to lay his life down for his sheep. He serves, he protects, and he equips the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. So why does it seem like many of our celebrity pastors are obsessively self-promoting, building their own brands, and protecting themselves by never preaching or teaching anything that would put them in Twitter prison? Yes, it's sad and devastating to watch our leaders fall into sin, but when the foundation is built so poorly, it shouldn't be all that surprising. Many Christians have been saying this for years, and it's past time that I join them. I'm tired of celebrity pastors. Pastors aren't supposed to be cool. They're not supposed to be fashion trendsetters. We are all called to decrease that Christ would increase both in our hearts and in our lives. That's John 3.30. His fame should be known, not ours. Celebrity pastors, get out of the way. You're hogging the spotlight by making yourself the story. Instead, you should be taking some hits on the front lines by stating clearly what God commands. Celebrity pastors seldom do this. Instead, most of what we hear is rhetorical gobbledygook, veiled mysticism, and repackaged New Age movement self-help promotion material disguised as the work of the Spirit. My pastor helped change my life in college. Really? Who? Exactly. He remains faceless, nameless, and will never get the adoration of the world because his desire was for Jesus to have all the glory. He taught me how to read and understand the Bible. He took my midnight phone calls. He instigated the necessary but uncomfortable conversations. He taught me the importance of sexual purity, and he even taught me how to paint a house and balance a checkbook. It almost sounds more like being a father, doesn't it? Working, serving, teaching your kids, and never expecting a thank you or a hand clap is what pastoring is all about. Pastors, I am thankful for you. Many are serving faithfully, and you will be rewarded by God. But for the pastors who are receiving their reward on earth, I have a request for you. Please stop looking for adoration from the world. We don't need you to look awesome. We need you to be fearless and preach the gospel according to the unchanging authoritative word of God. Stop finding clever ways to evade questions. You know the ones, God's command about sexual morality, God's authority structure in the church and at home, biblical justice instead of the religion of modern social justice. Answer them and answer them clearly for heaven's sake. Please stop trying to find a new way to explain the perceived inconvenient truths of God's word. You ought to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This used to be a prerequisite for church leadership. Today, it's deemed radical and even bigoted. Playtime is over. A spiritual battle is raging, and the field is full of wimps and boys who have never picked up a sword because it just feels mean. We need generals and leaders who don't care about their brand, their look, their likes, or making allegiances with the world. In short, it's time to make pastors uncool again. All right, Brian, what do you think? John. That's John Cooper. There's things I would pick apart in that where, um, but, but I, the overall concept of the concept of the celebrity pastor and you and I are on the other side, right? We are pastors. And, and I would tell people 
the draw to be uh, known and the draw to be um, liked a lot and the draw to be in the spotlight is uh, is really heavy uh, on our side. And and so I think as a pastor, I hear this and I'm like, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and I do think that there's something uh, important about um, not uh, when did this even start? Right. Where we made the pastor a celebrity or that was even a thing. And then we're surprised when the celebrity pastor falls. So I don't think celebrity pastors are all uh, weak and not willing to answer questions and not this like I would I would differ from him on that. But just the concept of the celebrity pastor, I think, is something we need to get rid of as much as we can in evangelicalism right now. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if that's totally possible. I I am curious I how how you would go about that, because I, I like you. There's there's parts of this I agree with and certainly parts that I, I wouldn't. I think that there's yep. some there's some false dichotomies here. There's probably some, some straw men like. Yeah, there certainly are times for a, you know, quote unquote, grab the sword moment. There's also mm-hmm. a great need for more pastors to be in touch with their own wounds and their own. And that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a different kind of battle, of course, obviously. So yeah. he's he's coming from a very particular perspective. It is always for me. There's a, a certain sense, almost hubris when it's like ah, the Bible clearly says this. You're like, well, Agreed. Christians all over the world have disagreed for centuries about what this phrase or that. You know, what I mean, it's not. Just because it like seems really clear to you and your perspective and your interpretation isn't always the case. Mm-hmm. But then again, like you were saying, the general premise, though, like, yeah, especially if the the motive is stardom is to become a celebrity. I do think sometimes mm-hmm. not to overuse like a term like anointed or anything. I do think sometimes there's there's moments where someone just has an incredible gift from God when it comes to preaching and teaching unpacking the word and people just respond to it there's something to that and their mm-hmm. you know church blows up or whatever i don't think that that's necessarily the same thing as like what he's outlining someone who is like endlessly pursuing you know affirmation or approval which ironically is what we're teaching on this weekend at community <laughs> it's it's the whole <laughs> passage in the sermon on the mount where jesus says over and over again uh don't do these things in public for the approval of man they they've received their reward in full so like this feels like a front and center subject matter for me right now to be honest yeah. And and I guess I would I would say it this way for people out there. I think how do we get rid of the whole concept of celebrity? We're never going to. We don't. But but I would challenge you as an individual. Like, uh, are you drawn to, you know, think about the pastor of your church or the ones that you listen to, or whatever. Like, what's the what what's drawing you to that person? What's the magnetism? And for us pastors, I think we just constantly have to be watching out for pride. Yeah. Uh, and the approval of man. And does it mean that we're like, I'm going to be the jerk who gets disapproval all the time? But <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but but what am I searching after? And I think we, we have to constantly check our heart there. So I thought that was an important thing, especially just kind of the state of the church right now. And uh, you can tell us where you agree with it and where you disagree with it at our Facebook page, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. AM 1160, hope for your life. everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. we are so glad that you're here i say that slow because i know that some people are listening at twice the speed and i want to make sure they know (laughs) how much we appreciate we were just talking off air too like what a bizarre year it's been which is not a hot take we realize everyone's talking about how weird a year it's been but i feel 
particularly humbled, though, that we've been able to do a show through a year like this. Like, can you imagine? Did you in any universe two years ago when we started the show imagine that we'd be doing a show during a year like this? Was that even on your radar? No, it's just so crazy. And we say this often, but in case people don't realize, since the middle of March, you and I have been at our homes doing this show with the and we're thankful for the technology. But even today on my Facebook memories, right, it popped up uh, doing a show with somebody where you and I would always take a picture with them in the studio. And I was like, that feels forever uh-huh. ago. Life Wild. is it, John was asking as our producer, like, does it feel like this year has gone fast? And it's like. It doesn't feel fast or slow. It just feels like everything's just so different. So it's helped to do a show through it to kind of stay engaged. But man, is everything so crazy right now? Well, and not just the the engaged part. You know, part of what I was saying during the break, too, is that like sometimes we need to do an article on what we can learn from cats. You know, just to, <laughs> just to yes. like take a break from what, you know, everything else seems to be pointed towards. But I also feel very grateful that we've been able to I mean, we're pastors and you know, part of the reason that we became pastors was a love for God and people. And it feels like in a lot of ways, this has been an opportunity to hopefully help people think through some things or to offer some encouragement or a challenge where we need it. And if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you've probably heard us mention the name David French. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with the name David French, I highly encourage you just to go Google him, learn more about him, uh, regardless of your political theological alignment. Like, I just think he's a he's a sharp needed voice right now. And on November 1st, actually, he wrote an article called How We Heal. And I intentionally wanted to choose some articles from, you know, a couple of days before the election, because I think the perspective of men and women like this, before we even know what the results are going to be, is so needed and so helpful. And we're not going to have time to get to all of it. But I just thought this was a, a timely read. So I'd love for Brian Fromm for you to get us into it. Yeah. And like you said, it's timely because especially now that and he didn't know this when he wrote this, but our election is not decided yet. It's going to get even more contentious. I think we're going to be uh, people who bring about healing or people who bring about division. And so I think uh, this becomes very important. As you said, French uh, at French Press, you love the name of his blog, Mm -hmm, said this. mm -hmm. There's a saying that comes that's common in the online world. We'll watch someone have a very public meltdown or exhibit brazen hypocrisy and critics will sneer. Trump broke him. It's a mocking way of saying that their anger got the best of them or that their anxiety turned them into seemingly public panic. A mainly partisan segment of the public seems to enjoy these spectacles. They like watching people fail. And make no mistake, the evidence of failure abounds. People are, in fact, breaking. They are breaking all around us. The longer I live, the more I realize that we simply don't know who we truly are until we're tested. We can vocalize our beliefs all day long. But when living those beliefs is hard, when upholding our principles carries a cost, that's when we learn what we truly value. Soldiers are familiar with this concept. There's an old war movie trope of the soldier who brags about his bravery and then fails in combat while the quiet, humble man demonstrates steel in his spine. But the trope is based in some truth. There is, in fact, often a gap between a man's rhetoric in his barracks and the reality of his actions under fire. If a person believes himself or herself to be brave until the bravery is tested, there is but one accurate response. We'll see. Other examples abound. How many millions of couples have sworn fidelity to each other only to see that commitment crumble in the face of marital conflict or simple Mm -hmm. direct temptation? If a person believes himself or herself to be faithful until that fidelity is tested, there is but one accurate response. We'll see. We could do this with every virtue. Virtue. Are we truthful? We'll see. Are we kind? We'll see. 
easy mm. virtue is hardly virtue at all. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Screwtape Letters, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. If I had to summarize the last four years in a single phrase, it would be simple. It's been a time of testing. Mm. This time of testing has broken us and divided us. It's divided us between those who are honest and those who lie, the cruel and the kind, the principled and the hypocrites, between the courageous and the cowardly. And make no mistake, this is not a matter of left and right or of Trump and anti-Trump. He says, I've opposed Trump since the start, but I don't think for a moment that the hashtag resistance has cornered the market on virtue. The stress and rage of the last four years has ruined lives and wrecked reputations on all sides of the political aisle. In fact, there are more there are ways in which the principal sins of the last four years are partisan mirror images of one another. He goes on to say, I've seen conservative Christians commit grievous sins in the pursuit of virtuous causes, and I've seen their opponents engage in terrible wrongs to defeat an, un, an unfit and cruel man, in their opinion. Not every person has failed every test, of course, as we've learned who people really are, as their values have been put to extreme tests. There are These are those who've withstood the storm. So I'll stop there for a second. Uh, I love how he how he sets this up. The fact that in the kind of the pressure cooker of what these last four years and I would say the coming weeks are going to be, uh, it doesn't form virtue. It reveals it. It reveals who we truly are. And I think a lot of us, you could, I'm sure, speak to this as well. We've there's people that we've gained greater respect for uh, through how mm. they've been and how they've navigated this kind of world that we live in. And if we're honest, there are people that we've lost a lot of respect for because who they've shown to be uh, in these last months and years. Yeah, he gives an example from his book, which, by the way, if you've not read it, uh, read Divided We Fall, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's the fact that he's putting out content like this in blog form is <laughs> incredible. So it shouldn't be a surprise to me that his book is also wonderful, but high, highly recommended. He talks about the uh, the story of Elijah, and I I love that he mentions it too because um, I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons about this particular perspective because Elijah has s- some other uh, aspects of his story that are way easy to sermonize. But he talks about in this encounter where he declares himself to be the only one left in service to the Lord, but then God contradicts him. And I just I love that exchange because Elijah's being a little emo. He's like, I'm the only one. And God's like, whoa, 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 calm down. So <laughs> David's talking about this word remnant and he you know, expresses his jealousy that his buddy thought of that as a podcast name. He likes the idea of remnant and he talks about why. But then he goes on to say that the critical truth is that as a nation or a, a church that heals not through the virtue of that remnant as admirable as it may be, the remnant might represent a foundation, but the repentant truly powered the church. That's how our church heals. That's how our nation heals. Not so much by exalting the righteous and giving them their due, but by embracing the repentant and forgiving them with joy. That mm. I love that. That's the crux of the whole article. Like that's where he's yeah. going, the question of how we heal, you know, and, and we've talked about this before. The word repent is the word metanoia, which simply means to turn around. And to, to your point, Brian, to turn around from the ways, the division that maybe we've stirred, uh, dissension, um, apathy, anger, any of those things like that to me is such a powerful call from someone who's not a pastor saying this is this is the way forward. This is how we heal. Yeah. And he goes on to say later, but repentance carries with it a corresponding obligation, forgiveness and membership in the remnant can carry with it the temptation of self-righteousness. And then he goes on mm-hmm. to talk about the prodigal son story. Uh, man, you know, Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry was calling us to repentance. And like you said, it's a, it's a theme running throughout the Bible. And, 
Uh, I would say self-righteousness is a big virtue these days, but but will the church, like you said, repent of where we've been wrong, forgive our brothers and sisters as they repent? I think it's going to be a true test, and I think he's so right here to say that's what brings healing, repentance, forgiveness. That's where healing begins. Mm, I, I like how he ends, too. I just <laughs> I enjoy his writing because he's got like uh, one more thing and yeah. then one last thing section, and then he at the end of the article, he uh, references a Zach Williams song. Either way, I think that's a powerful way to end an article, too. Like, hey, you might think that uh, my whole premise is way off. Uh, listen to this song and the profound truth that it demonstrates. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, brilliant. I just, I just love that idea. Coming up next, how solitude and isolation can affect your social skills. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian James Fromm. Is that right? I haven't done that, that is, in a while. That it was impressive right there. That is correct. Yes, it is. Thanks Thanks for keeping a, a low bar of uh, what's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> and I would remember the middle name of my co-host that I've been doing a show with for two years. I, I, yeah, I like that. Impressive. Let's keep, let's keep that word. Um, oh, we haven't done holidays yet, have we? And boy, oh, boy. We need one holidays of these, today. One yeah. of these in particular, Brian, is so ironic. It's so okay. perfect. So here, here I'm going to give you three. Well, maybe four. Oh, gosh. I have so many jokes I want to make that I, it's, I'm stumbling over my words, and I know that you don't know what they are. So first off, uh, it's National Chicken Lady Day. I don't know what okay. that is. Uh, National Candy Day, which is appropriate. Um, it's Unity Day. <laughs> but not here though it's in the country of russia which oh, no. <laughs> no 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 comment left um, with no, left without comment or <laughs> a commentary but the one that i find more ironic than alanis could ever hope for is national stress awareness day um <laughs> legitimately today is national stress awareness and people are like yes I am aware of my stress. Thank you. Oh, that's uh, funny. I, just, I saw that and thought, no way. There's it's both. That. It's both National Unity Day in Russia and National Stress. Okay. <laughs> yes, those are those are apropos of our current situation oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. Either way, legitimately though, if if you are feeling stressed, like take a breather, close the laptop, meditate and pray. Yeah. Like the, I go do for really. A walk. It's beautiful out today. Go for, go a, walk, for a walk. Right. We, we have an unprecedented week right now. With regards to weather, enjoy it as best you can. And, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. So it is kind of loosely connected. I was trying to think of the right segment to bring that up. I found this article over at BBC.com. It says humans are deeply social creatures. So what happens when we're alone for a long time? And it's about how solitude and isolation can affect our social skills. I think a lot of us are aware that it does affect our social skills, but maybe – we don't know much past that. I think most people would agree like, man, this prolonged isolation or quarantine, that's going to have some kind of effects. And maybe maybe a lot of us aren't thinking about any of the long term effects. Maybe more we're thinking like, oh, I just miss my friends or I miss being at the office. Uh, this article is pretty fascinating because it's going to make a case for some of how it's sort of shaping us and maybe how it might be shaping us long term. Do you want to get us into it? Yeah, it starts with a story of a guy by the name of Neil Ansel. Fascinating story in the 1980s. Uh, he got a cottage for only $130 per year, but it came with a, uh, a, a trade-off of extreme isolation. Uh, he lived on a hill farm inhabited by a single elderly tenant miles from the nearest village. He didn't have a phone, and in five years, uh, not a single person walked by the house. Uh, so it goes on to say, by the time he returned to civilization, Ansel had fully adapted to being on his own, and the social world was a bit of a shock. 
So fast forward to 2020 and Ansel's experiences might resonate more widely than they once would have with lockdown, shielding and self-isolating. Many of us have spent much more time in our own company. How does long-term isolation affect the brain? Do we need social practice? And will we even remember how to socialize when things return to normal? Those are such important questions. Mm -hmm. It says human beings are deeply social creatures. This is abundantly obvious from the way we live. It turns out there's a link between the size of a primate's brain and the size of communities it is able to form. The bigger the brain, the greater the extent of its social world. With our generously proportioned organs, humans form the largest groups of any primate, containing an average of 150 individuals. Right. Uh, as it turns out, uh, it says, as it turns out, uh, that it crops up rather a lot from the optimal upper limit for a church congregation to the average size of social networks on Twitter. That's called the Dunbar number. Uh, one explanation is that socializing is a mental workout. To successfully navigate an interaction with another human being, you need to keep in mind a surprisingly large amount of information. So this is why we keep that number of group. In the end, the number of relationships we can maintain is limited by the amount of processing power we have available. And over millions of years, Species with more social context tend to evolve larger their brains. It turns out this link works the other way around, too. In the short term, a lack of socializing can make them shrink. Pause here. You're Mr. Brain Science guy. Mr. Brain Science pastor. That's what we're calling you. Uh, Gosh, I wish. This is pretty fascinating that that the it's essentially saying that the longer time we go isolating and not mm -hmm. socializing, the then harder it becomes uh, even physiologically to begin socializing again, that we kind of not only become out of practice, uh, but our brain shrinks and that makes it harder. I, this is craziness. Yeah, they actually. So last year, German scientists discovered that the brains of nine polar explorers who lived in an Antarctica for 14 months at a research station were smaller by the end of the trip. By looking at MRI scans taken before and afterwards, they found that on average, the dentate gyrus, a C-shaped region which is mostly involved in the formation of new memories, was diminished by about 7% over the course of the expedition. As a quick aside, I actually remember maybe 15 years ago reading about, I think it's this same research station where they would uh, invite people, even if you had zero scientific background, just to man the station for six months, and they would they would pay you just like an insane stipend or whatever. But the problem was you would be in total darkness for the entire six months. And total darkness? The, yeah. And the second oh, I was listening goodness. to was interviewing people like how much harder that was than they thought it would be to be in isolation and to be in total darkness for six months. And even, you know, at like 23 or 24, I was like, ah, how hard could that be? The older that I get and the longer we're in quarantine, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I can see that really wearing on you. But yeah, it's not just about like the brain size you're sort of given at birth. There actually is neurological effects uh, when we're when we're isolated for long periods of time, which raises all sorts of other questions about uh, our prison system, which we're not going to get to. But I, yeah, I, I, I find this particular premise super fascinating. Yeah, and the article is going to go on to do something interesting. It's going to say psychologists aren't concerned with exactly how many people you have access to. Instead, most research focuses on how you view your situation. And so it's going to talk about the difference between loneliness and solitude. Because solitude involves, they say, being alone without being lonely. It's a right. contented state. Loneliness is a very different beast in which a person feels isolated and craves more social contact. And I think that is a huge difference to make there because I know – 
as I talk to people, people in church and other places, uh, I think through, since the pandemic began, uh, there's a lot of lonely people. There are a lot uh-huh. of people going, I feel lonely because I've been kind of into forced solitude, whether it be because of government regulations or it be because of health issues around COVID and whatever else. And I think there's just uh, loneliness out there in so many people uh, of which we don't know what the results are going to be. We don't know going forward what the results of this is going to be. But I, I appreciate that difference they strike between solitude, which is kind of this contented alone time versus loneliness of like, no, I want to be around people, but I just can't or I'm not right now. Yeah, I know that we're running out of time, but let me just read a little more. It says research has shown that even when lonely people do have the opportunity to socialize, the feeling warps their perception of what's going on. Ironically, this means that while it increases their yearning for social contact, it also impairs their ability to interact with others normally. Does that make sense? Yeah. The isolation, the feeling of loneliness increases your desire for social connection and impairs your ability to do it well. For example, people who feel isolated tend to have a heightened awareness of social threats, such as saying the wrong thing. They can easily fall into the trap of confirmation bias in which they actively interpret the actions or words of others in a way that supports their negative outlook of their own status or social ability. By having low expectations of others and viewing of themselves unfairly, they effectively invite people to treat them badly there's a whole lot more like that in this article it's uh quite long but super insightful i would i mean it goes in to talk about kids this to me i we could have done two segments on this one but i'm also realizing that i probably geek out on this more than uh, (laughs) what is healthy but either way i think just from a, a neurological physiological perspective this is this is worth a read because it's it's helpful to know the ways that we're being shaped that's right. That we might not be aware of. There's more obvious ones and there's, you know, obvious litmus tests like how we engage on social media. But the I don't know, this perspective, I think, is just super helpful and something that I think I think we would all do well to at least take a quick pause. Like, OK, how how am I actually doing in this space? Because I think I think it's important here in the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. Uh, a, a pastor, author, teacher, writer, what else can we make him? Great speaker, Michael Frost. He's a professor. Somebody who we, professor, that's the one I forgot. Uh, somebody we quote often because if you've ever heard him teach and speak or write, like we're going to read here from his blog, uh, you will not always agree with him, but he will always make you think. And so... Uh, Michael Frost wrote at his blog, MikeFrost.net. Uh, this, uh, he, this is the title of his blog post. Uh, Being a family is an art, and the dinner table is the place it finds its expression. What's going on with this article here? Yeah, let me read some of the beginning. Like you mentioned off air, it's a little bit longer than a normal Frostian. Frostian? A, fr- a frosty post. I, I like it. Uh, but I would recommend reading the whole thing. So I'll, I'll kind of set it up and then... I I have a guess that you and I are kind of we're going to agree with the premise anyway. But he said some time ago I was staying in the oh boy palatial home of a wealthy couple in California's Orange County. They had all rushed off to work early that morning and left a note saying I could eat anything I wanted from their kitchen. I located the bread, but I couldn't find a toaster, so I thought I'd try grilling it. But when I opened (laughs) the oven, I found two or three expertly gift wrapped presents in there. I was a little taken aback and decided to cut my losses and buy breakfast out that day. uh, That evening, I was talking to my host who had asked whether I'd found everything okay, and I confessed that I'd been a little thrown by the gifts in the oven. Oh, my gosh, he erupted. I totally forgot they were in there. I should have warned you. 
I reassured him I hadn't cooked the presents, and he explained they were there for his wife whose birthday was coming up. I hide them in there because we never use the oven, he explained. It turns out that never using the oven is becoming a more common thing for American families. Up until COVID-19 hit, Americans were spending more of their food budget on restaurants and food delivery services, 50.3%, than they did on groceries, 49.7%. It might be even higher since quarantine and lockdowns were instituted in various parts of the country. For some perspective, back in 1970, only 26% of a family's food budget was spent on eating out. In 2010, it was 41%. In fact, the average American eats one in every five meals in her car. 25% of Americans eat at least one fast food meal every single day. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. In fact, only 32% of American families typically have dinner together all seven nights per week. Interestingly, when families do eat together, the average dinner time is 15 minutes. In the uh, in the 1960, the average family dinner time was 90 minutes. I have a friend who, <laughs> which is wild, right? I'm from a family of nine people, so 90 minutes was enough time just to pass the casserole once. That's like <laughs> that's normal for us. I have a friend who insists his teenage and young adult children share dinner together as a family every night. And he was telling me that when he calls his son, who is a keen online gamer for dinner, he can hear the other boys playing the game, tease him about how he has to go eat dinner with the family. When he asked him if it bothers him to be teased about it, his son replied that even though they torment him, they told him they're actually jealous. None of their families eat together. And he kind of goes on to talk about some of his own family and story and context. But I'm wondering... One, Brian, do any of those statistics surprise you? And two, do you guys have like sort of a, a strict dinner time philosophy at the Fromm household? So as one as a person who ate one or two meals in the car this weekend. <laughs> so, <laughs> no judgment. Here's the deal. I love family dinner and I think my family probably does it more than others. But it's I don't know anyone who's like, man, I, I wish we didn't eat together as a family. Just so much gets in the way. And that's his point here is the prioritization of it. So do we have strict? No, we do not. Uh, Especially around, you know, baseball's coming up again and softball and school and all these different things. Uh, But I do know those days in COVID has made them happen more. Uh, Those days where we do get to eat together as a family are just really good. I can't imagine it being 90 minutes. That is really, I want to dive into that one. What does that say culturally that in the sixties, the expectation was 90 minutes, the average. Um, but I do love family meals and oftentimes, especially dinner, things get in the way and you really have to try to guard it. And so I love what he's saying and I'm convicted by what he's saying. And I like to and I, uh, I'm imagining you did this on purpose. So his categories here are eat simply, eat together and then eat with gratitude. And we're going to end the show talking about some gratitude. But uh, under the gratitude one, though, he says there's a saying it's the moments that we stop that give form to family life. So what are those moments for your family? When you think about it, you realize they're quite rare and they become more rare the older your family gets. Eating together and pausing to give thanks is a beautiful family tradition. Remember Bart Simpson's grace, God, we paid for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. (laughs) It sounds jarring and it's ingratitude, but when families never say grace, they foster the same attitude in their children. Giving thanks is a way of making our children aware of the animals and the people that feed us. It helps us acknowledge that our meals don't spring forth magically from the supermarket already wrapped in plastic. That reminds me of an interesting story. I remember going grocery shopping with uh, some students when I was a youth pastor. And one of the students had asked me, he said, why, why do we even still have farms? And I said, huh, what do you, what are you asking me? He goes, yeah, why do we still have, we don't need farms anymore. We have grocery stores. And I said, 
man. Where, like we were by the, we were in the dairy section. I was like, where do you think the milk comes from? And he looks at me like I was dumb and he goes, uh, from the back. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> like there was a and this isn't I'm not saying this is someone who like grew up in a farming family. So like as a suburbanite living in Naperville, I'm as dis- disconnected as anyone from right. like where our food actually comes from, something that I'd, I'd actually like to get better at. I'd love to know your thoughts, Brian, even on like life stage, you know, your kids are older than mine. So part of me on one half feels like ah, we're not great at this yet. But it's because my kids are so little and they don't really understand right. it. So we're not like having conversation. But part of what it feels like Frosty's getting at here is like, no, oh, start while they're young. Like, yeah. you know, cards on the table. We both have exhausting days. So like we just barely get them into their cribs. And then my wife and I, you know, more often than not, are like, do you want to eat while we watch something? Like just to yeah, unwind yeah. a little yeah. bit. But I'm I'm I have been feeling convicted lately. Like, no, if we don't establish these rhythms now while they're young, young then they're not going to see them modeled when they're in elementary school and junior high and high school. I think there's truth to that. Now, with your kids being one and two, I totally get survival mode. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I appreciate that. I totally get that. Uh, but it never gets easy. And so the the I do remember the difficulty early on when my kids were preschool, uh, early school. Uh, the, the difficulty early on was my schedule and my wife's schedule, right? Like, so it was like trying to prioritize having dinner instead of having like five meetings at church during the week in the evening time or right, something like right. that. Uh, and then it just flips and you don't even realize it flips. But one day it just flips to be your kid's schedule. Hmm. Uh, where did they have to be? And, you know, I, where do I have to drive you? And where do I have to take you? And where are you going? And uh, And so I don't think... Uh, that's where I think he's right. If you wait into those days, especially where it's your kid's schedule and there's been no value in the shared meal and dinner time and family time being put together, uh, it's going to be next to impossible to try to, uh, it's still worth the effort, but it's going to be really difficult to kind of reverse engineer that. Um, and so I would say, especially the years you have coming up, and I think you'll be really good at this, but as they get to, you know, four or five years old, uh, I think, my word of wisdom to you would be to prioritize your schedule hmm. to have those moments because it's not going to be any easier as their schedule begins to yeah. work against you as well. This is also, I mean, kind of the same concept. This is why we, uh, as long as our kids are in the house, we try to do vacations together and that right. might be like, well, good for you. Well, no, sometimes it's you and I, I was going to put an article in here this week about how much vacation time never gets used by people. Oh yeah. Uh, right. But, but, but like saying, you know what, we're going to do this because this is one of the spots where our family will have this intensity of being together and there's going to be shared experience. And what Frost is saying, like those kinds of things are awesome, but the dinner table can be the day in and day out right. of that experience. Uh, and so I think this is great. He say he calls a shared meal therapeutic. It's life giving. He says it might be a small act and require very little of us. But when you look back on your lives together, you'll find mealtimes were some of the happiest moments of your life. Yeah. Uh, and so parents out there, I would encourage you wherever you're at uh, to make that a priority. Well, coming up next, as we said, today is World Gratitude Day. So we're just going to talk about uh, not just what are we thankful for, but how do we grow in gratitude? That's how we're going to end the show next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And Ian, that's why we love live radio, man. Mm-hmm. Our producer, John, bringing us back in with some earth, wind, and fire. September 21st, 
Uh, his creativity does amaze, doesn't it, Ian? It's I I would pay to see him play and sing that song if we could make that happen. That would be that would be a crowd pleaser. Maybe we could get that uh, finagled into a Cubs game, a Cubs playoff game. Even now that they're about to enter the playoffs, mm-hmm. yes, those you mm-hmm. don't know, our producer John, one of the organists at Wrigley, I feel like he could get that in there. And uh, okay, we're going to work on it. But John you, plays you, that song today is September the twenty first. Uh, which I learned today is something called World Gratitude Day. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be it'd be good to end the show talking about gratitude uh, and, and ways not just what are you thankful for, but how do we grow in gratitude? Because something we obviously talk a lot about uh, on the show is in this culture we're in, there's so much angst, there's so much anger, there's so much division that sometimes uh, things like gratitude and thankfulness uh, and even joy uh, can really kind of go by the wayside. And so uh, I want to talk about, Ian, how do we grow in gratitude? And then maybe if we have time, we can, you know, we can get sappy and talk about some of the things we're thankful with, some of the things we have gratitude for. Uh, but if someone says, hey, pastor, I am uh, I understand gratitude, I understand the concept, but uh, I, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And I don't really know uh, how to even be somebody who feels gratitude. What would you tell them? Oh, gosh. Good question. I think gratitude is it's one of the I think it's I see it like as a spiritual discipline, to be honest, because I feel like so much Mm, of culture, East and West, modern and ancient, uh, veers away from gratitude. I, I don't know that I've personally met a lot of people who are just naturally grateful. I have met them. I do think they exist. Some people, they just they stop to smell the roses. They see everything as a gift on loan to them from a merciful and kind God. Like I know people like that, but the vast majority don't seem to be hardwired like that, myself included. So I think, you know, from from a very base level, we talk about like giving thanks at the dinner table, like Mike Frost was talking about in the last segment. Right. But more profoundly than that, though, I think it's it's easy to not be grateful because that tends to be the streams that our culture sort of, you know, invites us into like, well, if nobody around me is being grateful, then it must not be that big of a deal. I think, and I've, I've read extensively over the years, like the the science of gratitude, what it does to us physiologically and neurologically. There's an article from Forbes that I remember reading a couple months ago about like, here's just some of the straight up benefits. Like you don't even need to be selfless about it. Here's, Here's how gratitude actually betters you as a person, which I always find so interesting because some of it's like, yeah, even if you don't even share the gratitude with anybody, even if you keep it to yourself, there's these these very real physiological benefits. And uh, I think I think that's probably what people don't hear enough. Actually, sometimes gratitude can feel like like I heard someone recently say, well, I've. If I'm grateful, then it means that I'm like, okay with every circumstance before me. I'm like, I don't think that's true. I don't think gratitude means, well, then I have no need to stand against injustice or I have no angst or anxiety over like our current political climate or my church or whatever. We tend to think they're like mutually exclusive. Like to well, to be grateful means, well, I guess I must be fine with everything. I don't think that's what it's about at all. But I do think assuming a posture of gratitude and maybe particularly in a Christian way of thinking about it, that sees everything that I have as a gift on loan to me from God that I'm to steward well in the world, that will shift the attention away from, man, I wish my house had a thousand more square footage, or I wish I was making 15 grand more, or I wish my kids would do this, or I wish I was getting this recognition at work or whatever. 
that's natural. But I think gratitude, especially like consistent gratitude can work to kind of untangle some of those things in, in a really helpful way. Yeah. So what are some, do you have any practical ways that you try to grow in gratitude in your own life to take that sort of posture that you're talking about? Yeah, man, there's, there's a couple of things that I think are really easy and don't require like a lot of overhead or skill or like, I've told the story of my great grandma who, when I was 13, she was closing in a hundred. And I was always amazed at like how she had such a vibrant prayer life when at 13, I'm like, I couldn't care less, you know? And she said, I just, I just, pray alphabetically i like i run through the alphabet and i thank god for things for each letter of the alphabet and she would do that two or three times like she would start with air thank you god for air that i breathe air right now thank you god b for birds that i can hear singing out my window right now like she was just an incredibly inspiring but also just like deeply anchored soul and she would like that it's always stood out to me one of the things we did at poplar creek that was a part of all of our staff meetings was before we dove into any business, any agenda driven stuff, we nominated people that we were grateful for. Uh, and we wrote on thank you cards and I'll tell you what, man, yeah. not only would that like change the tone of the meeting first, but then the gratitude that the people showed for the card we gave them, it didn't matter. Sometimes it was someone that was like, like they volunteered a thousand hours of their time and we wrote them like a, a quick little card and they would come back like in tears, like, thank you for the card and i'm like you just gave like a lifetime of of your time like it was you know it was amazing to me how much that meant to people which again makes you grateful all over again i've talked about like a gratitude journal that kind of stuff is really helpful there's things like for me trying to be more consistent with my running like committing some of the time during my run to like think through things that i'm grateful for to like turn that you know into a into a prayer time having little kids has been like a real joy because i can just you know I'm at work. So a lot of times the questions that I'm asking them, are like, what did you see today? Where did you go today? And like that trying to instill in them, like, Oh, I did get to go to a farm and see a horse. Like trying, trying to really instill that in them has made me more grateful, which has been really helpful. I mean, and there's a lot of books and there's volunteering, you know, giving back yeah. is a really great, easy way to just sort of, to see it as a spiritual discipline, as a, as a formation issue. I think gratitude, we tend to think of it like as, like falling in love, like, oh, well, I'll just I'll just happen upon gratitude if if the stars so align. I'm like, I don't buy that at all. I think we can actively go after gratitude uh, as a discipline and gr- I think we can grow in it and I think we can help each other grow in it. So I, I don't know if you have stuff that you you tend to go to that has been helpful for you or not. Yeah, you 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 brought up a great one. My kids, when I talk about them and to them about, you know, what they have in their life, they, they just reminds me, it, it kind of shakes me back to what I can be thankful for. And, mm. and that's an important one. I love to just go for walks and um, think about um, and pray about just the things, the bigger picture things in my life, because sometimes on the day-to-day aspects of my life, I can feel overwhelming and like, oh, things are hard. But then when I'm able to step back a little bit, for some reason, I can do these on walks. I think it's probably what you do when you run. Right. And so uh, be able to step back a little bit and go, what what is what do I have to be thankful for? And actually give thought to that. So many things flood my mind that I usually come back from those walks going, all right, I feel pretty good. Like you said, this doesn't mean that you don't have any problems. Right. right? Like this doesn't mean that you everything is just great and we just pretend that everything is fine. No, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. And there's still lots of things to worry about out there, but to be able to focus on some of those things uh, that cause you to be thankful and to have gratitude, Mm -hmm. I think uh, 
is not only so important, but it's biblical. It is throughout the Bible, and I think it's there for a purpose. So uh, we'd love to know what you're thankful for. We're ending today just with that uh, in mind, today being World Gratitude Day. Uh, what is it you're thankful for? Uh, even if your present circumstances aren't great, even if things are hard right now, what are some things that you can still be thankful for uh, that you can give a little bit of focus to? So hopefully that helps. Uh, it's World Gratitude Day uh, and and we're thankful. Uh, how about we end this way? We're thankful for our listeners, right? We're thankful for the people yeah, who podcast absolutely. and who listen. We really are glad for the time that you give. Well, uh, Monday is in the books, but God willing, we'll be back for uh, from four to six tomorrow. Would love to have you join us either live on the radio or via the podcast. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.